Hey everyone, Derek here from Conspirituality. I didn't grow up in a very culinary family, but my Eastern European roots did afford me the ability to cook a pretty good chicken paprikash. It's actually one of the few meals from my upbringing that I was very fond of. And I like to prep all of my food in advance, usually hours before, so that way when I get down to cooking, it's all ready for me. In fact, I used all of the chicken in my last shipment of ButcherBox to cook chicken paprikash. It is definitely a favorite here. ButcherBox really allows you to have everything on hand so that when you are ready to make your meal, you pop out of the freezer, give it a day, and you're ready to go. Right now, ButcherBox is offering Conspirituality listeners your choice of a weeknight meal must-have for free in every order for a whole year. So that's either three pounds of chicken thighs, two pounds of ground beef, or a pound of steak tips. Plus, you'll get $20 off your first order. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash conspirituality and use code conspirituality to choose your free offer and get $20 off. If you're a fan of workplace comedies like The Office or satire like The Onion, then I have a podcast that I know you'll love. It's called Mega. Mega is an improvised satire from the staff of a fictional mega church. That's the premise. Each week, the hosts, Holly Laurent and Greg Hess, are joined by guests, people like Cecily Strong or Jen Hatmaker, to portray characters inside the colorful world of Twin Hills Community Church, which they describe as a mega church with a tiny family feel. The result is a sharp-witted and hilarious look into the world of commercialized religion using humor to cope with the frightening amount of power that church and religion have. So I very much recommend you checking out Mega's episodes, like the one with Saturday Night Live's Cecily Strong, playing Cece String, a hilarious character who's fresh out of jail, uh, and also comedian Jason Mansukas. You may find yourself dying of laughter and perhaps inspired to take an improv class yourself. Mega is able to keep you laughing as you think and reflect about the world we live in. You can find Mega on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Comedy fans, listen up. I've got an incredible podcast for you to add to your queue. Nobody listens to Paula Poundstone. You probably know that I made an appearance recently on this absolutely ludicrous variety show that combines the fun of a late night show with the wit of a public radio program and the unique knowledge of a guest expert who was me at the time, if you can believe that. Brace yourself for a roller coaster ride of wildly diverse topics from Paula's hilarious attempts to understand QAnon to riveting conversations with a bona fide rocket scientist. You'll never know what to expect, but you'll know you're in for a high spirited, hilarious time. So this is comedian Paula Poundstone and her co-host Adam Felber, who is great. They're both regular panelists on NPR's classic comedy show. You may recognize them from that. Wait, wait, don't tell me. And they bring the same acerbic yet infectiously funny energy to Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone. When I was on, they grilled me uh, in an absolutely unique way. <laughs> about conspiracy theories and yoga and yoga pants and QAnon and uh, we had a great time. They were very sincerely interested in the topic but they still found plenty of hilarious angles in terms of the questions they asked and how they followed up on whatever I gave them like good comedians do. Check out their show. There are other recent episodes you might find interesting as well like hearing crazy Hollywood stories from legendary casting director Joel Thurm or their episode about killer whales and killer theme songs. So no 
Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone is an absolute riot you don't want to miss. Find Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Welcome to Conspirituality Podcast. I'm Matthew Remsky. And I'm Julian Walker. And Derek is on assignment today, but will be producing as always. Thank you, Derek. You can find us on Twitter under our names, except Julian, you are at... I'm at Embodied Sacred. It's my old yoga Twitter account. Very good. Uh, In general, there's a little bit more action on Instagram at ConspiritualityPod. Although it can be a little bit irritating that some folks engage there as if we're just an IG account, but you can go yeah. there and you can help set them straight. <laughs> uh, we are 100% independently owned, operated and produced, and we are paid for our countless hours of research, interviewing and writing by our kind Patreons, who you can join ranks with at patreon.com backslash conspirituality. There's only one subscription level. $5 a month gives you access to our weekly bonus episode in which we take turns tying up loose ends from regular episodes, or we produce more personal explorations into the topics at hand. Conspirituality 89, Till Death Do Us Part, with Mary. Mary joins Matthew for an extended interview about the last year of her husband's life. Lewis died of pancreatic cancer almost exactly a year ago at the age of 45. Mary, who was asked that her last name be kept off the record for privacy concerns, loved him and cared for him throughout that journey. It was hard, not only for the reasons we all share, but because Lewis spent his last months under the influence of quantum chiropractor Joe Dispenza. At one crucial point, He was on the verge of stopping his chemotherapy treatment, believing that a Dispenza meditation technique might be more effective. Now, Mary is an applied psychologist with a science background and an evidence-based mindset. She didn't share Lewis's beliefs or ideals, and at points was terrified that his death would be hastened by conspirituality. But of course, she loved and served him nonetheless, and it seems he had a good death, perhaps blessed by beliefs that made Mary wonder if they might provide relief for her as well. If we've learned one thing over the course of this project, it's that we'll be living and dying together for a long time at the crossroads of data and imagination, science and spirituality, evidence and the unknown. We're grateful that Mary has shared this love story of how she navigated it all. Some of the toughest feedback I think we get on this podcast is about tone, Uh, whether we empathize with our subjects, whether we're too acidic, whether we should be more alkaline, let's say, uh, whether we add more division to an already polarized world. Uh, Also, do we look down on all alternative healing and new age spiritualities and the people who practice them? Um, We don't have really clear answers for these good questions, except for the last one. I don't think we look down on anybody, Uh, you know, but I think we can say that we're just 
people who do many different types of things and we have different lenses and different affects and moods. Uh, and it really wouldn't be honest to maintain some sort of objective detachment from the disasters of the past two years. And sometimes the cruelty of conspirituality is so odious that, you know, contempt just seems to be the only clear response. But today, uh, no contempt or satire or cynicism, because we have a really good story about two people on either side of a porous line that seems to divide some important ways of looking at the world. And on either side of another porous line that divides those who expect to live and those who can feel that their time is getting short. In talking with Mary, I was thinking about all of the listeners we have whose stories we don't know, all of the friends and family members who stand on either side of those lines looking at each other. So we've got a few notes before we begin uh, for some added context. Uh, firstly, you're going to hear Mary talk about the influence of uh, Joe Dispenza in Lewis's life. We're going to do a full episode on him at some point, but for now, we're going to refer you back to episode 85, which is called Gaia Buys Yoga International, where we introduced this galaxy-brained chiropractor as one of the wacky Gaia TV mainstay content providers. Now, Dispenza, just to review, started out as the in-house chiropractor for the cult of Jay-Z Knight in Yelm, Washington, uh, at her Ramtha School of Enlightenment. And he claims a lot of things, that he's a researcher of epigenetics, quantum physics, and neuroscience. And if you don't believe him, he's got buzzwords. For instance, in the pitch for a Gaia program that he offers, uh, Derek reported on this, uh, Dispenza promised to help participants uh, with the following, to enter deeper levels of the subconscious mind and learn how to be your own placebo. Uh, secondly, to liberate emotional energy stored in your body and then use it to create a new destiny, to broadcast new electromagnetic signatures to create new opportunities in your life, uh, to open your heart and strengthen your immune system by changing your attitude, uh, and to balance your autonomic nervous system by thought alone. So that's the kind of thing that's on offer at the Dispenza Outlet Mall. Hold on a second. I need to turn on my, my uh, snark disabler. Uh, and I'm, okay, I'm purposely not going to say anything right now. So go, go ahead. Right. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. But buffering, buffering. Okay. Well, the second item to flag uh, is that we're going to hear Mary talk about how Lewis came to know Joe Dispenza in part through taking courses at the University of Santa Monica towards his master's in spiritual psychology degree. Now, this is also the place where he was introduced to other alternative modalities and also gained a friend group that he really appreciated. Now, Mary's pretty open about having poked like gentle fun at her husband over his University of Santa Monica journey, but Julian, you have some notes about the more disturbing aspects of this university, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, let me just say it's a very powerful and touching interview, Matthew. Uh, and, and with regard to USM, this, this topic is it's personal for me as well in a, in a less intense way because I've known many people who went through the University of Santa Monica program. It's, it's close to where I live. Uh, 
it was the gateway into this world of spiritual ultimate charlatanism that Mary's going to tell us about uh, with regard to what her husband got drawn into during his battle with cancer. They offer a master's in spiritual psychology, which is very appealing to curious and open-minded therapists or to people who have an undergrad psychology degree and, and, and want to go further, but have a sort of a spiritual temperament. And they've sort of, over the years that they've been in existence, they've gone back and forth between being accredited, being unaccredited, having some sort of halfway in between sort of position, depending on, uh, on various bureaucratic logistics, I guess. Uh, it just so happens that these kinds of people who who end up in the program are usually really nice. They're smart. They're earnest people. And many of them have populated my yoga classes and social set for the entire like 30 years or so that I've been in L.A. And so I have to say, when I first encountered the USM ideology, it took me a while to realize that my thinking and I imagine, you know, you might resonate with this to some extent, Matthew, about how on the one hand, psychology could help scaffold people out of spiritual bypass. Like that would be a good integration, right? Right. And, and spiritual bypass. And then what I see as the, a more kind of immature or newcomer superficial stage of new age belief. And on the other hand, how specific embodiment and mindfulness techniques might be wonderful adjuncts to legitimate therapy. Like it might have something to offer. So you're not, you know, the, the, the stereotype of Woody Allen just endlessly recursively reflecting on your, your mental cogitation. But this is not really the USM angle. And in fact, what I found over time by talking to people is that it's the reverse. And my sense is it's essentially training in how to perpetuate spiritual bypass, blame the victim, deny trauma and suffering, and sort of buy into this self-aggrandizing, right? Because you're becoming a therapist, magical thinking and false claims about why things happen to people and how you heal, uh, somehow via this idealizing of incongruous and incoherent models of reality, it, the ideas then foster this belief that some kind of higher order integration is happening and that this is somehow better than non-spiritual therapy, right? That boring old uh, mainstream therapy or ways of thinking about emotional life and psychology. Uh, it's it's a, a almost uh, pernicious to think about the same old material being wrapped up in a kind of pseudo-clinical yeah. presentation that that has the word um, well, what is it? Masters in spiritual Masters psychology? Of, yeah. I guess. I guess. I guess there, there's a there's a sense in which people are becoming therapists. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And and I my, my, from talking to people over time, this is just this is not based on data. The sense I get is that in in a way, fairly similar to the yoga teacher training. Uh, landscape that we're familiar with, a lot of people who take the course never end up becoming therapists. It's more of a sort of personal growth journey, a deepening of your own practice, if you will. Right. And then, and then there are a certain number who do end up uh, going going for becoming therapists, whether they're they're licensed or not. The other interesting detail that most people either don't realize or strategically decide not to mention when talking about USM is that it was actually started by the cult leader, John Roger. I don't know if you're familiar with him. I hadn't been, I wasn't familiar until you sent these notes and then I looked him up and yeah, I have a few things to say, but this is really important. Yeah, he founded something called the Movement of Inner Spiritual Awareness, oh, right. MISA, which listeners can look up if they're interested. And he founded the University of Santa Monica. I'll just say here, some of the things he's more well known for include sexual coercion, death threats against critics, 
And, you know, that old trick of having hidden microphones all over the headquarters of the MISA that he used to create the illusion of having psychic ability. So he's listening in on everyone. And then when he would have conversations with staff or students, he would act as if, you know, he was picking things up that he could only have known if he was psychic. Uh, he's also sadly well known for a photo he took against a green screen handing a big check to mother Teresa herself <laughs> so that his PR people could then make it look like he had gone to Calcutta they put all the sort of they put sort of some stock image of the impoverished people who mother Teresa serves in Calcutta behind their image oh. Oh, no. Yeah. And he handed her a check for $10,000. So, you know, people are also critical of her being complicit in this, in this ruse to, to, to legitimize his, uh, his, him as a, as a kind of, um, uh, what's the word philanthropist yeah they sound like two peas in a pod but i think mother Teresa's is a whole other episode yeah but i'm i'm really glad that you dug this out uh, i wasn't familiar with john roger uh, i i found a 1988 investigative report from people magazine in the sh and we'll put that in the show notes uh i just think this is a super important element because as we hear mary talk about lewis's beliefs i think we should remember that those beliefs are intrinsic to the relationships in which they are shared. And when we're talking about relationships in New Age communities, it's pretty much cults all the way down. Uh, now, I'm not implying that Lewis was in a cult at University of Santa Monica, but when you're studying unaccredited materials at a pay-to-play college, the only real capital that you're investing in is social. Uh, and then he runs into Dispenza, who literally came into his own in the cult of Jay-Z Knight. Yeah, all the way down. So the demographic I move in here, as I mentioned on LA's West Side, who find USM appealing is also very open to the influence of charlatans like Joe Dispenza, uh, who, who cuts a kind of uh, you know le legitimate-seeming, science-y uh, figure through that world in the courses that he offers and, the, as you said, the buzzwords that he uses. I mentioned on the Gaia episode that a therapist I know and love recently attended one of these week-long destination retreats off the coast of Europe, I forget which island it was, that promised to teach this meditation meets neuroscience tool set that will deliver the ability to affect matter at the quantum level, of course, because that's what all the ancient texts were about. And therefore God. heal disease, which, right, you know, th there's, there's such an incredibly hard line there that's being crossed. I'm, I'm stunned. I want to also say that, you know, this friend who I'm talking about, in, in case they ever hear this, is, is not an anti-vaxxer, not a COVID denialist. So some, somehow they're, you know, able to hold these things in different compartments. But the legitimizing and mainstreaming of these kinds of beliefs over the last 30 or 40 years, I see is so damaging for so many people, both psychologically and now in terms of the anti-vax and COVID denialism that is in a way a logical conclusion of these kinds of uh, wild claims about how, how to stay healthy and how to heal from disease, right? It's always been a problem. But when these seemingly harmless and fanciful ideas about how to be more holistically healthy bleed over into mind over matter fundamentalism about serious illnesses like cancer, uh, we've definitely taken a wrong turn. Well, thanks for the added USM context, Julian. All right, then. Uh, here's the interview with Mary.
Mary, welcome to Conspirituality Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. Uh, I just want to acknowledge off the top that we're talking about, I think, one of the richest and most consequential experiences that uh, human beings can have, and that is, you know, caring for a person that we love as they die. And so I just want to uh, acknowledge that off the top and to thank you for being willing to explore it. Yeah, no, I'm happy to be here. Um, now, we'll get into more detail a little bit farther down, but I just want to provide a thumbnail up top. You reached out to us and described how your husband, Lewis died of pancreatic cancer almost a year ago. Uh, this was February 8th, 2021. Uh, he was 45 years old, and this was following a seven-month illness. Pancreatic cancer is an extremely difficult condition to treat, but the prescribed chemotherapy did seem to be working. However, you described that tensions arose between you when under the influence of Joe Dispenza and other alt-health spiritual gurus whose ideas and values you, you don't really share, uh, Lewis considered stopping his chemotherapy. Eventually, however, he carried through with the treatment and then later died. Why did you reach out to us and what do you hope will come from sharing your story? When I actually initially reached out to you, I was uh, doing a puzzle and just hanging out and listening to your podcast, which I do often. It's been a way that I kind of disconnect from the rest of my world. And the last year has been pretty challenging. Um, so I was doing that. And then you just hit a trigger when it came to Joe Dispenza. Um, Joe Dispenza is a figure in my life uh, that I never anticipated having in my life um, as somebody who didn't, wasn't a part of this world, um, wasn't a part of, of having these deep beliefs in these different spiritual, really conspiracy, conspirituality um, aspects of, of the world. Um, I never thought that this would come into my world. And so it just, it was a knee jerk reaction. I just felt like I needed to share it. And I think that one of the reasons I want to share my story um, is that I think on this podcast and other places, there's sort of, you know that there's real people behind this, but you don't necessarily know the real consequences. And it's one thing if somebody's saying, hey, I'm going to you know, use this alternative medicine to heal, you know, try and heal my back pain. Um, it's a very different thing when somebody says, I'm considering stopping chemotherapy for one of the lowest survival rate cancers. And the reasoning is, is because I believe that this meditation practice is healing my cancer for me. And I think that there are, like myself, there are other people who are, we're real and we experience this. And I think there's something about sharing that personal story that, that, you know, it's impacted me when I hear other people talk about this. So I'd like to be able to share that too. Maybe we can start with you taking us back to how you and Lewis met. So we met, actually our relationship, unfortunately, was cut incredibly short. We met about, um, on Monday, it will be three years ago. Um, and we met on a dating app on Bumble. And uh, I had met a few people and he was awesome. He was just such a quirky person. Um, and when we had connected on, on the dating app, he had, you know, I asked him what he did for a living and he worked as a 
in leadership, um, leadership development at a company that I respect so much in, in our area. And so, uh, especially because it's very evidence-based leadership development and that's the world that I come from is very evidence-based. And so it's something that my graduate program, we had a lot of respect for people. We sent interns there. They had a lot of our alumni. And so I had been looking for a new job at the time. And I thought, well, you know, if this doesn't work out, it's a good networking opportunity. Um, but it did work out really well. And uh, we ended up together. So that was in yeah almost three years ago. Leadership development, I'm, I guess I'm not really that familiar with the discipline or the form, but you say that it's, it's evidence-based, but it also sounds like it's might be a little bit aspirational or a little bit coachy or something like that, or am I mistaken? No, you nailed it. Um, okay. So there's, there's different elements of leadership development. Um, I, from my professional background, is as an applied psychologist, so an industrial and organizational psychologist. And um, we really observe uh, and study behaviors in the workplace. And so that bleeds into a couple of different areas, and one of those areas is leadership. Um, and so, yeah, there is an inspirational part of that, absolutely. And there's also, you know, there's ways to um, measure success in leadership programs. There's ways to measure uh, behaviors within organizations. Uh, right now, I work in a lot in employee experience and how we experience the workplace and how that impacts our performance. So um, it is a lot of the uh, different consulting firms that do leadership development are very fluffy. And uh, this, per <laughs> this particular one is not... Uh, and Lewis had previously worked as a consultant for many years at Deloitte, um, and he had an MBA from Duke, and he had a very, you know, robust uh, consulting background. And then he went into this organization, and on the he also had a side business, um, two of them. So one of them was coaching, um, and you know, when he told me he was a life coach, I was a little bit put off by it. <laughs> so I was like, well, you know, what does that mean? And <laughs> I don't know about that. Was that on the Bumble profile? Oh my God. No, it was not. I would not have swiped. <laughs> I would not have swiped Isn't that amazing? I know it, you know, it gives you such a short amount of information and it really like, so I try and be, you know, I was always trying to be really open-minded, but um, <laughs> if that had been, I would have been like, we have to <laughs> say he, he was lucky. He was lucky with his profiling <laughs> then, right? He put the right stuff on there, but um, yeah, <laughs> he definitely would have swiped the other direction. Now you say that he had always been, I think this was in your initial DM to us, that he had always been into natural healing and uh, woo, which you put in quotation marks. Um, and you also said that this was never your thing. Now, how did that play out between you? So I guess when I, I say that, how he's had, he'd always been into that. Um, as far as I had known and met him, he had always been into that a little bit more, just generally more spiritual than I am. I'm, I've never been, you know, I wasn't raised with religion in my life. And um, I've always come from things from a much more very like this is science we have to follow science um it just wasn't something that was really on my radar now i did have a little bit of some of the experiences that you all talk about on this podcast a lot you know i went through ytt um in 2015 um you know i have my own experiences with that and my own opinions there and and you know 
a lot of those things, the, the experiences that I have had in the yoga community myself has, has been a lot of this, you know, well, like that's not really, that, uh, that seems a little bit off to me, but you know, do your own thing. It's fine. Um, it's, it's not, I'm not going to shut you out of my life or pass too much judgment any other way that I would with, uh, you know, somebody who was any other religion or any other, uh, spiritual beliefs. I, I'm not, you know, that doesn't really, uh, sit with me. So I'm, I was really open-minded about it. Um, and it wasn't, in some ways it was a prevalent part of our relationship. In some ways it wasn't. Um, I think when he was, he hadn't gotten a master's of spiritual psychology, um, which made me laugh because <laughs> as a psychologist, I was like, oh, that's a field. <laughs> and, um, and then I remember uh, one of the first times I was at his place and, um, and I, I, I joked with him about it, you know, I was like, oh, well, you know, tell me more about this. And it wasn't, it was not psychology. <laughs> and I remember seeing on his bookshelf, this book that said, um, it was one of those, uh, psychology for dummies. And I, I started laughing. I was like, was that your, was that your main textbook? <laughs> oh man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, and, and, you know, and he laughed back, um, and he, he knew that this was that as a psychologist, like that was my profession and that was my world. Um, and we also, he acknowledged that, you know, I used to say he's got two master's degrees, but only one of them's real. And that's his Duke MBA, which I was a very proud wife and, and girlfriend before that, that, um, you know, that my partner was smart and, you know, everything else. So, <laughs> um, Anyway, he had this this master's and from this place called um, the University of Santa Monica, which I mentioned to you. And it's not a real university, so let's be clear on that. Um, I think that at this point they have some sort of credentialing program for, you know, where you start with your associates and then finish in psychology. But and it is run by some PhDs in psychology. However, you don't study anything related to psychology that I'm familiar with. Uh, there is a little bit of Jung in there. Um, a little bit of Freud slips in, like no pun intended, but, um, he, <laughs> but it's not, it's not the way I think of it. There was no dissertation or research involved. So that's, that was his background. And when he was in that world with those people and those friends, most of them, were very into all of these alternative things, you know, uh, holistic approaches. Everyone was into tarot card reading and angel cards and Akashic readings and breath work and yoga and all sorts of meditation and things I had never heard of. Like, you know, does this, did you know that this helps this? And I'm like, I have not, this world was so foreign to me. Um, but it wasn't so foreign that I couldn't that I didn't understand where he was coming from at all. I think the longer we were together, the more I saw really the problems with it, of it not just being, okay, this is your, like anyone would have a religious belief, you know, it, it, I just hadn't experienced that. And I, and I hadn't seen really the selling of what I consider to be a religious type of belief. And that's where, we butted heads on that, 
you know, I didn't see why you would be paying somebody if they're supposed to be, let's one of the ones I always got a kick out of, um, healing past lives. I always thought we were supposed to focus on the current one, but you know, apparently past ones are important. And so why, um, it always, it didn't make sense to me. You know, why would I be paying someone or anyone be paying someone to heal, go back? And I don't even know what they're doing, to be honest. I don't know if they know what they're doing, but to go back and, and heal these past lives. Well, why am I, you know, if this is a spiritual thing that's supposed to help me get to a better place, I can go, you know, to a church and I can go to confession or go talk to a a priest or a pastor and, you know, get, have their ear and have them listen to me. And they're not charging me, you know, a thousand dollars to go back and do this They're This is a, you know, and while they may have some sort of income from it, it's not, to the level that we see in this community. Was there also a sense that if you were Catholic by heritage and you could go to confession or something like that, that uh, there would be some sort of institutional credibility behind that? There would be some sort of gravitas or relationship that wouldn't just be about what seems to be a commodity? Yes. Um, I think that was definitely... It still is. It's it's an issue that I have with a lot of these types of things. Well, if you're going to bring in life and death and, you know, how you interact with people and, you know, for lack of a better word, are, are processing your sins, you know, why to kind of make it up as you go, which is what I feel like is going on most of the time to kind of just wing it seems really inauthentic and that it's just... A commodity rather than being a more deeply held religious or spiritual belief like Catholicism or Judaism or something that's more established. I don't think it's um, controversial to say that love is very strange. And like uh, when you're describing <laughs> how you're kind of um, dunking on him a little bit, like right from the beginning about the psychology for dummies on his shelf. And, you know, you would have swiped left if, if the, if the coaching thing was on his profile, there are some immediate tensions uh, between these two paradigms that you bring into your living space together. But I'm wondering if there was some spark with that as well, uh, if there was some way in which these contrasting values were actually complementary. And it was interesting when I saw that question, uh, because there actually was. I, in in a way, I remember at one point before he before we knew he had cancer, we were talking about our, our future life and you know what kinds of things would we hope that the other person would bring into our children's lives. You know, what are, what are the things uh, that we wanted them to get from the other person? And something that I would have wanted our children to have from him would have been a sense of spirituality um, that, that was so important to him. And it really made him a very reflective, self-reflective person. Um, He had a structure around how he did things. And I think that for a lot of people, they need that structure. And, in my life, that wasn't there. And I feel like I've navigated that fine. I also think that there's a lot of people who thrive on that kind of structure. And having that sense of feeling like you know what happens or are at peace with what happens when we're no longer, you know, living, what what comes next? Um, it's the one thing in the world that we just absolutely don't know and never will know. You know, it's, it, it's the sense of faith. And it's something that I had hoped 
you know, if we had had children, um, it's something that I wanted them to have was that sense of faith because it's, it can be scary. I mean, from my side of things and not having these beliefs, there was a lot less for me to lean on during the time that he was sick, during difficult times in my life period, and and most certainly when he passed away. You know, I didn't expect you to answer that question from the perspective of visualizing or imagining children in the future and the qualities that they'd have. But that's an amazing way of answering that question, actually, you know, to say, well, you know, we have these differences, but what would they really look like in a kind of alchemical form? Yeah. What did you most love doing together? So Lewis was, and I both are big travelers and he wins with stamps on his passport, but um, I am a little bit younger, so I've got some catching up to do. So we both um, loved uh, to travel. We loved trying new things, Uh, both very curious people. Uh, We liked, both of us were really thirsty to learn. I mean, when you have two people who work in, you know, leadership and professional development, it's kind of, it's kind of like, well, what are you doing next? Like, what's your next developmental move? And we're kind of dorks like that. So (laughs) which next leadership book did you read? And so, so uh, we did kind of geek out on that stuff together and listen to, you know, podcasts or, you know, watch different documentaries around this sort of thing. And we were the people who were putting this all into practice and, you know, um, at our home life. And it was, uh, which was really cool to have somebody like that in my life. Um, and we both like to hike, really like to be outdoors and we're both super independent people. And so we were really focused on, um, doing our own thing and coming back to our relationship and sharing that and sharing those experiences with each other. Uh, so those were probably some of my best memories. There seems to be some joke in there about how uh, if you're both into leadership things that you would be competing, uh, you would be out, you would be out leadering <laughs> each other or trying to figure out who is going to optimize most or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I think he would have won on the com- on the competitive side of that. I think he was committed to to being the. Uh, I mean, and in some ways, I mean, he re- inspired me so much, right? So he was taking this, he was in a job that when I first met him, I was like, oh, this is something I would really love to be doing. And being, um, Lewis was nine years older than I am. And so he had that, that you know, further in his career. And, and so to me, I was like, oh, this is so exciting because we have these fun things to talk about and we can, and um, you know, as our relationship progressed, we kind of saw the strengths in each other. And yeah, I mean, it's a really kind of a weird, it's only, it's like who can outdork <laughs> the other person. And, <laughs> and I feel like two people who are in similar careers, but kind of different, like you, you definitely do that. <laughs> so. At a certain point, Lewis is diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Can you share the conversation that you had together around that time? Yeah. So that was in July of 2020 and we are in peak pandemic and he had gotten into one of his modes where he would set these with his goal setting modes. And he had gotten this goal of, I'm going to do uh, 12,000 steps a day for 30 days. And he would, you know, really on top of measuring things and he was losing weight really quickly. And he was having a lot of uh, like, pain. And I thought he was just being a big baby and had heartburn in the beginning. 
And so as I'm thinking like, I, cause he had he was the healthiest person you'd ever meet. I mean, this man never got sick. He never had, he was 44 when he was diagnosed. But prior to that, I mean, he never got colds. He never, he, he could do anything he wanted. He didn't get sick. He was incredibly fit. And so, um, even before he was diagnosed, we had gone on a road trip, um, through to see my sister in Denver. And we had driven through Arizona and Utah and gotten out to Denver. And I had to work during the week and he climbed three 14ers within two days and, um, 14,000 foot peaks within two days. And then was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer three weeks later. I mean, he was really remarkable in how, how well his body worked. And so as it, you know, he said, I'm, I'm losing all this weight and my stomach hurts and I'm having this pain. And, and we knew something was wrong. And it was also really hard to get into doctor's offices at that point, because we're in the middle of a, you know, a pandemic and everything's flooded. And every time you try and get an appointment for a scan or something else, it gets pushed out. So I think he was diagnosed later than he would have been if there weren't a pandemic going on. But he was really good at advocating for himself. So we definitely got in earlier for different different um, appointments. So basically, we'd gone through several different um, doctors and then finally getting a CT scan that confirmed that he had pancreatic cancer. And I think leading up to that in the week or two leading up to that, we kind of knew the direction things were going. Um, the first time I heard the word cancer, I was terrified and I was a wreck and, you know, I think I processed these things one step at a time because in my mind, okay, it can't, pancreatic cancer never crossed my mind. Never in a million years would I think that this person who was 44 at the time and in such amazing health would have pancreatic cancer, uh, stage four metastasized pancreatic cancer. And he did. And so as they narrowed in on it and then went in and saw how much it had spread everywhere in his body. Um, it was shocking, but I think we, we went step by step through the process. And by the time we got there, it was confirming what we knew. And when I was around him, when we were going through this process, I tried not to, you know, I tried to be really brave about it and to be really supportive and say, you know, we're going to figure out what this is and we're going to do everything we can um, and then when we got there, you know, he was so, it wasn't that he was stoic about it. I just, I think that, and he had did tell me at times, had it been me or one of his immediate family members, um, he would have probably been a wreck and worried, but in his own body, I think it was almost surreal. Like, is this actually happening to me? And everything felt surreal at that point. I mean, we're all locked at home and have to wait an hour in line to go get groceries. And then suddenly the love of my life has cancer and not just any cancer, one of the most deadly cancers you could possibly have. It's, it's still unreal when I think back to what that experience was like. Was it early on that Louis interest in alternative medicine entered into your conversations about his diagnosis? So alternative, I don't even like calling it alternative medicine because to me, it's not medicine. It's, you know, alternative, I don't know, health, health 
boosts. I don't know what to call it, but that's copyrighted, by the way. That's copyrighted. Alternative health boosts. <laughs> yeah, we can't use that on this podcast. Yeah. Oh, I I don't know if I've heard of that one. That would be pretty cool if I came up with a new one just now. <laughs> um, so you know, I kind of I it was a given that that was going to be a part of the experience. Um, ironically, when we had met, maybe we're, I want to say it was maybe in six months in or something. And, um, you know, he had started expressing these beliefs and these alternative modes of, of, you know, taking care of yourself. And I was a little bit taken back by it. You know, I understood a lot of the spirituality, but then I didn't understand like you, you would do what, you know, you would, you would use this, you would use diet if you had cancer. And I remember getting really upset with him and saying, you know, so you're telling me that if you had cancer, you would go and try and just eat clean or eat a specific diet. And he was like, well, I'd, you know, I'd probably end up using an approach of both, you know, more holistic stuff and, and, you know, Western medicine, uh, also known as medicine that is uh, backed by <laughs> backed by evidence and science. Uh, but he had said to me, and I remember being really shocked because that was, and you know, you don't think that that is ever going to come into play. Certainly not that early. You know, maybe that would come into play when we were when he was seventy five or even younger than that. But certainly not, um, you know, a year and a half into knowing each other, and so I always knew it would be a part. Um, and then from the beginning, it was immediately apart. Uh, but it it wasn't to the place where I thought it would ever replace the actual chemotherapy or the other types of approaches. Um, but we had the and I and I was with him on this. You know, take the approach of of let's throw everything at this. And you know, in my heart, I knew what I believed to work. And I also know the power of of faith and, and personal beliefs is, is strong. And particularly with people who have cancer diagnoses and other very serious illnesses, people with cancer do tend to fare better if they have positive outlook, if they have, um, oftentimes that comes with religious and spiritual beliefs. I, I didn't look at it as that was taking away. I, I just looked at it as a complimentary thing to add into the mix, but it was a part of all of this this stuff that we talk about, all of this woo-woo stuff, it was a part of his treatment. It also sounds like there was some kind of boundary that might have been difficult for you to really delineate in your mind uh, about how the belief would have moved over into an activity where the thought that diet would help with the cancer diagnosis would suddenly not be seen as something complementary or supplementary, but would start to have its own magical power. And for the most part, you know, what you find when you go through these things is that everybody has, has, you know, try this, try that. And you're getting all of this information's coming at once. And with cancer, you're not just meeting with your oncologist, you're meeting with your, uh, the pain doctors and you're meeting with a dietitian and you're meeting with, you know, you have everybody, you're meeting with all sorts of support. And then people are throwing these other things at you and it's, it can be very overwhelming, even if you're just coming at it from one angle. So then you add in this whole other layer of, of beliefs that aren't, and, and treatments that aren't founded or grounded in any sort of, you know, evidence. And 
then you have to try and navigate that too. And it's, it's a lot. You know, I haven't actually considered that, that um, in a typical um, cancer treatment scenario, it's already holistic in the sense that, you know, a social psychologist is going to be there and uh, there's going to be somebody sort of in charge of logistics and the oncologist is going to be doing their specific thing. And then, you know, there's this, there's a there's a coordination of specialists that are taking care of different aspects of care. And in that sense, the kind of unifying principle is, well, these are best practices and this is what we have evidence for. But I can really see how it's already complicated uh, at that level. But then to add a, a completely different epistemology into that as well. You don't realize it until you're there. Right. And so you, you know, objectively from the outside, yes, people get, and you may have friends or family and you've heard of this, but when you're in it, it's, um, there's a lot. I mean, we're learning about, I'm learning about an organ that I knew nothing about in the human body. I don't know. I didn't know what a pancreas really did. I had, I knew it was a part of your digestive tract. That's it. And you're learning about all of these medications and the treatment and, the protocol and the potential side effects and what you end up having as side effects and the medications to counter that. And I mean, there was a point I'd say where he was taking at least 20 different pills a day and I managed all this medication and it was, you know, very time specific. If you don't take this specific medication every 250 calories while you're eating, it's not going to digest and you don't get credit for those calories, they won't stick to you. Um, so there's just so much and you're learning as you go. And, you know, I, I wasn't unfamiliar with having, with dealing with, uh, you know, medical issues. It's, it's not like I had never interacted with a lot of doctors, like from my own personal care that I had, I've dealt with. Uh, so to me, that part, well, it made sense to me. You know, the doctor's telling me this is the, this is what we have available. This is the best, you know, the best out there. It's the best practice. You know, you're going to get second opinions and third opinions. And I really loved our, our team. They were incredible and they were professional and they were kind and caring and supportive. And, you know, I, they were enough for me. And if it wasn't enough for him, I was, I was supportive of that. There's a detail that, you're describing in the treatment of pancreatic cancer that I also don't know anything about, but it's making sense to me that it sounds like in the treatment process, there's a race against time because not only is the cancer metastasizing, but the person can't retain the calories that they're taking. And so the specific medications are helping with the kind of moment-by-moment digestive process. And I think that is not only nightmarish for all human beings, but I think it would be particularly offensive to the person who believed or to the culture that believed that food had magical properties. Absolutely. And, and it is, I mean, and the other thing is that diet is an absolutely critical part of the treatment of pancreatic cancer. We worked with a dietitian um, who's incredible and, you know, we were having appointments with her initially weekly and we had, you know, you really had to understand and we literally, I kept track of every single thing that he ate 
And every time that he ate it and the symptoms that came with it and the medications that he took every single day, I have notebooks full of this, of what, how did you feel when you did this? How many pounds are we up now? How many have we lost? Um, you know, what, what were the related symptoms to this? And it's very complex and it's not, um, it's a learning experience. There's a curve to it and they can't tell you everything they can tell you. And, and the reality is, is that when you talk to the dietitian, as opposed to somebody who may look at, at, you know, eat a bunch of celery, that's the one I would always hear celery. I'm like, I don't, first of all, you're talking to somebody who doesn't even want to eat because they feel awful. And you want them to eat celery all the time. Like it was a joke. I mean, and, and I could see how it was conflicting, you know, because everyone cared about him. It had nothing to do when we would have these outside influences, you know, friends or family members that had, you know, different, different uh, approaches to this and how they would have handled it for themselves. Everybody had his best intentions in mind. You know, everybody wanted him to, to beat it. And, you know, we never gave up hope. Um, we knew how bad it was from the beginning. There was no question that being told that you have advanced stage pancreatic cancer is for most people saying you have a death sentence. And some doctors will even say that to you. I mean, they're not, you have, we had to learn how to set boundaries with doctors and say, this isn't how we want to be talked to about this. And you know, we never gave up hope until the very, you know, it wasn't until the end when he said, okay, I'm ready. Like I'm, I'm ready to stop with this because there is that one in a million chance. And there is those, those, you know, sporadic remission stories. And, you know, they, they, and even though, you know, that it's not realistic, you have to have hope. And like I had, you know, mentioned to you, he was doing really well. I mean, he got back to a place within a couple of months where he was going on six, seven mile hikes. Um, he, he was traveling. He had gained, he had lost 40 pounds at his lowest um, and then gained back 30 pounds. Um, he was, the cancer was scaling back in certain areas of his body, uh, like where he physically knew he had had a, um, a lymph node that had a tumor on it and his neck he was gone. So it was even, you know, he looked, he was looking like himself. He looked like himself again. And um, so chemotherapy was working and he was so determined. He was so determined. It was like at the end of the day, even if he was, if it was forced, he was going to get in 3,500, 4,000 calories a day. And that's, it sucks to do it. Even if <laughs> people think like, oh, that sounds like tough tough thing to have to gain weight. Like it's really hard when you don't want to be doing it because you're sick. Um, but he, if there was anyone who was going to survive this by the stretch of a miracle, it was him. And I, unfortunately that didn't happen. I wasn't for lack of, of determination and trying and, and really having such a great healthy body to begin with. Um, I think that really worked in his favor. You mentioned outside influences and, this is where I want to ask about when you first came to know about Joe Dispenza's content and how 
that was influencing the way Lewis felt about his illness and treatment. So Joe Dispenza is an interesting character in the in this whole story because the first time that I had heard about Joe Dispenza was prior to any of this. Uh, Lewis at University of Santa Monica had done this other certification called something like Conscious Health and Healing. It was like a certification in this, and it was a year-long program. And and I I don't understand exactly. It's not like Joe Dispenza was a part of the curriculum, but for whatever reason, um, he had a knee injury at the time, and part of what he was working through. And I, I, again, I don't know all of the details. I didn't know him then. Um, was he was working through this healing his knee. And that's when he first was introduced to Joe Dispenza, or, you know, he might've been introduced before, but that's when he first applied this method, if you will. I I don't even know what to call it. And where he was doing these meditations, uh, you know, for an hour a day. And he, over the course of time, as he would put it, he healed his knee. Um, and he ran a half marathon and that was the goal was to get to this half marathon. And I wasn't there. I couldn't tell you, but my best guess is that when you rest something and when you really put a lot of energy and focus on it, that you're probably, he was probably doing more than just meditating. If you talk to him ever, I mean, up till his last day, he would tell you that he healed his knee using this method and of meditation. So I had heard that, and you know, I, he would tell me this night, it didn't, it didn't matter. Like it didn't apply. So to me, I was like, well, whatever he thinks he did that. I don't, I'll let him believe whatever he wants to believe. Like I don't, it d- doesn't make a difference in our day-to-day life now. But then when we got into cancer treatment, I, and you know, he would say, well, I was able to heal my knee. I can do anything. And I'm like, all right, well, great. Like, let's put that energy into what we're dealing with right now. And, and so he did, and he would talk a lot about, you know, I want to do this Joe Dispenza stuff. And he wouldn't really like get into it. He wasn't making time for it. And so, and he would sometimes be critical of himself. And I would always encourage him to take a step back and say, you know, what, look at all the things that I am doing. Like, is this really the priority? And, you know, if, if you want to do it and it makes you feel good, then great, let's do it. And I support you. And now if, if it's not something where you want to spend your time, then I'm not going to, I don't care, you know, then it's not, you're not finding value in it. Now the same is not true for any of the the treatments, the chemotherapy, that's not true. I didn't feel that way about that. Like, oh, you know, take it or leave it. Like it, it didn't, I didn't feel that way. And so Joe Dispenza enters the picture when um, Lewis started feeling, started doing better. And we'd had this big lockdown world and Joe Dispenza was then able to start doing his week long intensive retreat things or whatever they are. And I didn't know a whole lot about this, right? So I had heard the meditations and long before I, Lewis was sick, the first time I heard Joe Dispenza's voice, I think I mentioned this in my DM to you, is that he, I think we were using a meditation to fall asleep. And and this voice came on. I was like, that is so creepy. Like, and you turn it off. And um and so I, I just, his voice irked me. It felt like this 
I don't know, mega church, like God complex. I just didn't like it. And it kind of the whole meditation about getting down into your cells, it kind of creeped me out. So it was just, it wasn't my thing. And, um, and he never, you know, played it anymore. Cause like what he's not gonna, there was plenty of other meditations for falling asleep that we could listen to. And so, so fast forward and he's telling me about this retreat and I'm trying to be really open-minded as I generally am. And, or I believe that I generally am. Other people may argue differently. I'm not sure. And they had started opening up these, these week long retreats again. And he said, you know, will you go with me? And I was like, well, there isn't one in San Diego um, or in Southern California until there isn't one in Southern California until April. And that was quite a ways out. And there was one in Florida and Florida is the last place I wanted to go in the middle of the pandemic. This is not a place where people, I mean, there's no vaccines out yet. We're still locked down in most of the country and Florida is just running around. Like they do not, I'm, you know, I'm sure not all of Florida, but let's, let's be real. Yeah. The case rates were really, really high. Yes. And so I didn't want to go, but at the same time it was going to be, he hadn't traveled without me since he had gotten sick. We had gone one other we had traveled one other time during the pandemic while he was sick for his birthday. And, and it was hard. It was really hard. Um, so with this, he, he asked me if I wanted to go and, you know, I said, okay, like I'll, you know, I'll go with you. But then really I didn't want to, because I had, I was hardly work. It was hard to work while we were caring for him. So he was doing better and I really needed to focus on my job that I had been neglecting for several months. And, and then it was expensive. And I said, I don't want to pay for it. This isn't something I want to pay for. If you want to go, I think that's great. And um, and then ultimately he went um, with and, and stayed. Ultimately he went and stayed with his parents when he went. And so he had, you know, family there to support. Um, and he went to this retreat for a week. And we talked during that whole time, but he was very busy and I'm having anxiety in my head the whole time thinking that he's probably, all these people aren't wearing masks and nobody's, you know, they're all probably hugging each other and getting too close and all, you know, it was just, it was pretty overwhelming to me. So I tried not to think about it and just trust that at the end of the day, he gets to make the decisions that he wants to about his own body and his own health and safety. And of course, I didn't want him to do that. I also, I just always took the approach that this is your journey and I'm here with you to support you and love you and care for you. And so that's what I did. That was the the only time in his entire cancer treatment that I was when he came home from Joe Dispenza that I just lost it. He came home and he had not had a chemo treatment in three and a half weeks. His typical regimen was every other week. And he had to postpone one week and then he had this trip planned and it ended up being three and a half weeks. And what happens with chemo is that when it's not coursing through you and you are on a break from it for a while, you feel better because you're not having all of this poison flush through your body to kill cancer. And so, you know, he was doing a lot better physically and then we added in that he didn't have chemo and he came back and he's all high on life from this great retreat with, 
you know, and I'm not there saying, uh, this is a little weird, you know, like I normally would have been. So he came back and the next day he had chemo scheduled and he told me, you know, I need to talk to you about something and I'm debating not uh, going, not going to chemo um, tomorrow and not, and, and stopping for a while. And I mean, I've outside of him actually dying. It was the most devastation I've ever felt. It was like he was telling me that he was giving up. And I know in his head, he didn't feel that way. Um, I think that he thought that he, I think he knew and he didn't know, you know, I, I think that there was a mixed feeling. I think he wanted to believe that this was working, that this meditation was working because he didn't want to be sick anymore. And he wanted to, and he was feeling better. And I don't think he wanted to feel that way. And I remember just like to the point of just bawling and like screaming, I just wanted to be able to take the cancer away from him and have to deal with it myself for a while just to give him a break. He was so, he just wanted to feel better and he was getting a little bit of a reprieve and it was so hard because he knew that he needed to keep going. And so he did ultimately end up going um, back to chemo. And um, the next day, and, you know, as it turns out, Joe Dispenza's method didn't work, <laughs> but he did continue um, from that point forward. He would wake up but there's something about like the melatonin is highest in your system at a certain time in your sleep cycle. And so you, know, you get up and you do this meditation at whatever, it's like three in the morning or something. And it takes an hour and most of the time you fall asleep and he was dedicated. He did it every single night until he got really sick and ended up in the hospital. Uh, he, he was very dedicated to it um, and believed it. He asked you to come to the retreat knowing likely how you felt about it uh, and knowing that you had asked him to turn off Joe Dispenza's, you know, sleep meditation <laughs> CD because it creeped you out. <laughs> There's something really, I mean, poignant and moving about that. I know that it sounds like you're also keeping track meticulously of his eating and of his medications. And I'm sure that, going with him on the retreat that would have helped him keep track of all of those things as well. And I'm wondering whether he wanted you to believe in these things by asking you to come, if it was more than just the logistics. No, he wanted me to believe. Um, it was, a, it was a point that we, and we discussed in our relationship that would be, you know, if we talked about we would sit there and think, okay, what, what would be areas of potential conflict in our relationship? I mean, you have two people who love to just dive into like the psychology and the background and really get into the nitty gritty of everything. So this sounds like a leadership <laughs> exercise actually. <laughs> um, yeah. So we had these, um, we had this long conversation about like what potentially, you know, with, with relationships, uh, it's how you manage conflict and, and, because uh, it's going to come up and what do we see as source of potential sources of conflict? And um, for him, he saw 
this as a, not this Joe Dispenza, but the overall experience of, of his version of spirituality, which I wouldn't say I'm not a spiritual person. I just think that it shows up differently for me. It just isn't in this world of, like, I call it this woo woo world. It's not like that. And so, you know, he, um, he thought that that would be a conflict. And I, you know, I always wanted to keep an open mind. Um, and I, you know, with this, I, I think that there's no, as awful as it was and as horrific as this experience was, I mean, Lewis and I lived 20 years in the span of seven months. Like you just grow so quickly. Um, there's nothing more intimate than taking care of your partner when they can't stand, when they can't get to the bathroom by themselves, when they can't, you know, and then, and he was there for me too, with all of this. Um, he was always there for me, making sure, you know, how I remember one night when he was hospitalized and I was sleeping on um, like a cot thing there and I guess he couldn't sleep and I woke up and he had put blankets on me. You know, he was always looking out for me too. It was not a one-way street. And I think, I think he had hoped that I maybe had gotten to a place where I was, I guess, open-minded enough to believe in the possibility of this. And I think that he also probably saw it as a bonding experience, you know, a way that we could, um, could go and, and do something, uh, in his world together. Um, and that this was probably the only opportunity that he'd seen where I was really open to this stuff because I was and willing to be, a, to participate because to me it was, it was in addition to everything else. Um, again, I never, I didn't, I would never say to him like, this is wrong. And this is, this is, because at the end of the day, I, I don't know, I still go back to the scientist mind of like, well, nobody's really tested this. So who knows? <laughs> you know, I can't, I'm never going to erase the possibility of something that I don't know being out there. Um, and, you know, you get desperate for one of these things to, to be real. You get really desperate for it. And I can see how people not myself. Um, you know, I, I didn't get there, but I could see how people could really go down a path where they have to believe this in order to keep going. Um, because the reality is just so much harder to wrap your head around. And it also feels like the reality never really leaves. And I hear a little bit of that in the ambivalence that you describe after his return from the retreat, where, yeah, he says, I'm considering not going back to chemotherapy. But you also described having the sense that perhaps he's giving up. Perhaps he doesn't want to go through the sickness and the poisoning of the chemotherapy and that the meditation actually is giving him a different type of relief, a different type of healing or a different type of cure. And there's going to be some sort of balancing act between these two things uh, where there might be an implicit acknowledgement that only one of them is really going to work if we're talking about surviving. I think that that's exactly right. You know, so to me hearing, I don't want to go to chemo said to me, I heard, I don't want to do this anymore. And, 
and I didn't think he was there. Like, I didn't think that that's where he was. And because he was getting, he was doing really well, you know, he was showing huge signs of improvement. And, um, so I didn't think he really wanted to give up. I think he just, I think he needed any, he talked to me first about it and I think he needed, he had just spent a week with so many people who were just reaffirming all of these beliefs that I can meditate my way through this, you know? So he's surrounded by all of these people who are, it's very raw, raw, like, yes, you can do this. And, oh, this person cured this and this person cured that. And they come up and they, you know, give their, Joe Dispenza talks about this person and that person and how they healed X, Y, and Z with this, you know, with this method. And, and if you're having that entire week, you're being reinforced of like, yes, this works. And you meet people who insist on the same things. I understand where he was. um, But I think that he came back and at the end of the day, I don't believe in these things. I believe in what I know to be truth or science and, and, you know, evidence. And so I think coming in to me and talking to me about it, I mean, it was a safe place to talk to me. I'm, I'm his wife. I wasn't at the time we got married um, in December. Uh, but you know, he, I was his, his person. You know? And so I think he felt safe talking to me. And I said, you know, whatever it is that you decide, I need you to, if you decide that you're not going to do this, I need you to talk to your family and tell them because you're, you know, parents and siblings, because I'm not going to just, you have to explain what it is that is going on in your head. And, um, you know, and I said, even before you make this decision, I want you to talk to them. And he talked to his brother the next day and he called his brother and his brother, you know, believes in this stuff too. And his brother's immediate response was, well, why can't you do both? And it was a big relief to me because I was, I mean, honestly, I was nervous that he was going to say like, you know, since he is on board with a lot of this stuff too, I, I was scared. I was afraid in saying, I need you to call your brother. I was, I was terrified that his brother was going to say, yeah, I think you should give that a shot. And I just had to take that risk and, and trust that, that, you know, at the end of the day, what his brother says and what he, you know, his beliefs that it, that it lined up better, that at the end of the day, he did believe in in doing chemo. There's something very complicated here because it also sounds like believing in the Joe Dispenza method is a way of avoiding saying I'm giving up. It felt like that sometimes. Um, I think that no matter what the people in our lives who also believed in, say, Joe Dispenza, um, being a cure-all for every ailment, apparently under the sun you can cure with this, and other people's. I didn't realize that, but that's a, a, allegedly a thing that you can do with Joe Dispenza's method. You can remote cure them? Yeah, you can remote cure people. You didn't know that? You can do it remotely? That's awesome. That's great. Yeah. It's really, you know, they're up with the technology. So, <laughs> But you can do a lot of things. You can remote um, 
heal past lives. And- wait, 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 you're going too far. <laughs> you can remote heal past lives. You'd have to remote heal yeah. past lives. How, like, wouldn't you? There's not... I don't really know how it works, to be totally honest. Do you, do you pay, like, the farther back the life is, do you pay more or is it or is it less? Like, are, which ones are more important or more complicated? <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to argue that the current one is the most important. However, some people will argue that these other ones are just as important. So I don't know. Agree to disagree, I guess, with them. Um, I I mean, it it did feel like that. But I think ultimately we got to the place in his treatment where, um, you know, he did well for a while longer. And then he was going to have to, regardless of anything else, he was going to have to change the type of chemo he was doing, whether or not it was working because the side effects are compounding for the particular type of chemo and um, his side effects were getting more, were getting worse. And so you get to a place. And so he started having some other symptoms were reappearing and some new ones. And so we had uh, decided our oncologist had, you know, we decided to start a different kind of chemo and we were really waiting to get into um, a clinical trial for him. And um, it's the same clinical, the same drug that is, you know, they're only in phase two right now, uh, put uh, Senator Harry Reid into remission. And so the irony of this, of course, is that an immunotherapy is basically vaccine therapy, right? Right. And so in this world, this seems like a, a completely all, you know, different world to me when I look at, you know, how I live my life and the people that I'm around most of the time. And then, and then this other world, this, you know, wellness influencers and the Joe Dispenses of the world, it seems so different. Um, and so we have a lot of this vaccine hesitancy and also complete anti-vaccine um, approach. And yet, here we have us desperately trying to get him into a vaccine therapy drug trial and how much the irony of that is. He came back and we had this taste of what it was like to live normally, the two of us, and in a home that we had bought over the summer and uh, and he was starting to work again and uh, you know, going back to work and we were excited about all these things and then we ended up getting married. Um, we eloped. We went to Vegas, and in under forty-eight hours, we went from we called our families and said we're here and we're about to go get married, and everyone was happy and it was wonderful. And a week later, about a week later, it was starting. The hospitalization started, and um, by this time last year, um, he had gotten out of the hospital after about three weeks, almost three weeks total, and. That was when, you know, I promised him we would never, we would never go back if he didn't want to. We'd never go back to the hospital if he wanted to be done and not be hospitalized ever again. Like I would support him in any direction he went. I think he was to the place where he wasn't quite there yet. We still did a couple more rounds of chemo, but he, we didn't want to live in the hospital. And these are hard things to decide. And I think one of the, one of the things that broke my heart was seeing him go into the hospital so sick and being so critical of himself for not being able to do these meditations anymore. And it was so, it was so painful to watch that because here he is and he, I mean, he couldn't eat. He had ultimately when he left the hospital, he was on a feeding tube and um, he, I mean, he was just so sick and he was, it was hard to walk and 
he's the youngest person on the unit, mostly cancer patients unit. He's the youngest person by a lot. And I remember one of the doctors talking to me about, um, about everything and, and him tearing up and saying, you know, it's, it's really hard because I see your husband and he's my age to watch him feel like he was letting anyone down, even himself by not meditating just crushed me because he worked so hard. He tried so hard. We did everything we could. And, and to think that being in this hospital and getting one, one doctor after the next coming in with more bad news, you know, give yourself a break. You're doing everything you can. Your body's just not, doesn't want to work. And that was really, so that's when the meditation actually ended. Um, the Joe Dispenza stuff ended because he couldn't physically do it anymore. It also tells me that the meditation that it was instrumental for a particular purpose, but beyond that, it wasn't about. Um, it doesn't sound like it was about presence or self-regulation or about. Um, equanimity or conjuring wonderful memories or gratitude. I mean, those things might have been part of the instruction, but it also sounds like if there was so much pressure to have to do it um, in order and, and, and that, and that you were, your death was going to be hastened somehow by your inability to do it. That just, I don't know any form of meditation from any kind of spiritual tradition, legitimate spiritual tradition that would, that would do that. I don't, I don't understand what that would be. No. And, um, and that's the position I always took is that if this adds, if this adds value and if it adds, if it adds to your, your experience here in a positive way, then I think it's great. And if it brings you peace and any sort of relief, whether it's emotional, mental, spiritual, physical, I don't care what it is. And, you know, I, I mentioned this, um, I think, in, a, in an email with you is that we, we were in a financial position that we can afford these things. And what scares me is that people, some people can't, and they will go this path. And these Alternative healthcare um, practitioners can suck them dry financially, and really, and then at the end of the day, there's no accountability for it. It's like, well, you know, you didn't, you weren't able to to meditate down to the cellular level and the quantum field, and so that's on you. It, it's it doesn't. That's what's. It's really painful because. You know, or you, oh, well, I couldn't get through healing enough of your past lives. Sorry. You know, it's like, it's put on you. And I feel, I felt like with this particular Joe Dispenza stuff, I felt like that was an area where he felt like he had some level of control, right? Like I am the one who's doing this. I'm meditating where nothing in his body was in control. And at least I feel like maybe I'll have some control here. And I mean, ultimately he didn't, but you know what? It, it was the, the idea of having control when nothing else in the world is in control. 
I think that's the, the, why he stuck to it and stayed with it because as things, they just felt so out of control. They felt all out of control for all of us because it was out of our control. It's wild because uh, it's all out of our control sounds like the statement of a religious aspirant, actually. Whereas uh, a meditation technique that it promises to give you a certain amount of control sounds like the opposite. Yeah. And I think uh, that's that's how I used to look at it, was that that was the value he was getting from it. And again, as long as it wasn't taking away from the other stuff, from the chemotherapy, it it didn't make a big difference to me. Um, so once we got over that hump of the, I think I'm going to stop, and then he didn't, then it was okay, we're, we are relying on these experts and our expert treatment team and the, all of the doctors who have, you know, spent their lives dedicated to treating people. And not just that, you know, it's the dietitians, it's the, um, Chapman, the chaplains, there's all sorts of people who are involved in this. And I just get so angry when I think about Joe Dispenza's and others like him, because can you just imagine watching the person you love more than anyone in the world saying, I'm going to stop the one thing we know could be helping me and go down this path of, and in my opinion, they've got blood on their hands because they stand there and they say, you can, you can cure your own cancer. And that's just not true. I wish we had that capability. And if there was anyone in the world who I feel like would have had it, if it was available to them, then it would have been Lewis. I took care of my mother in hospice last year, uh, at the end of last year. So I suppose while Lewis was quite sick and perhaps being hospitalized, um, we brought my mother home and I helped my father take care of her for 10 days as her life came to an end. And I think one of the most striking things about that experience is how profoundly um, alone it can be and how one really has the sense that whatever death is, whatever dying is, the person going through it is really entering uh, an unspeakable experience that no one else can really know about and we don't really have access to. Like it's... it's uh, and it feels, when I think about uh, how my own mother's cancer progressed, the moment of the diagnosis uh, actually initiates a kind of fork in the road <laughs> where <laughs> the person who's going to survive is going one way and the person who's going to die is going the other way. Um, and the, the distance between them gets farther and the ability to communicate against that gap, uh, you know, across that gap gets a little bit more difficult. And, but what strikes me about your story is that um, part of the fork in the road is this difference in belief systems. And that as he, as Lewis goes to the retreat and begins the course of meditation that you can support it to the extent that it makes him feel better, but 
he's also going into a zone of relating to life and living that is more and more foreign to you or is more less less accessible to you and so one thing that i wanted to ask you is that it's you know one thing that people always say about alternative medicine otherwise known as whatever uh whatever these techniques are uh, what they provide or they claim to provide is somehow in their promise of holism a more emotionally receptive space for the person who seeks that care. Now, was there ever a sense that with you being a scientist and with the the differences between you being clear, that for Lewis, the emotional support that you would have to give him just in an existential sense, like I'm a human being and I'm with you, that that was less somehow than what he needed? That's an interesting question. Um, I think in the beginning of his treatment, I think that was true to a degree. I think that, um, you know, like I said, we, we grew, we, we lived 20 years in the span of seven months. Um, I think in the beginning that there was hesitation there. Uh, and I think ultimately at the at the end of the day, we got to a place and it wasn't, didn't even take that long where, um, it didn't really matter what I believed happened, you know, at the end of life or what I believed with, uh, he would like, he would have liked us to be on the same page about that, but I don't feel like he didn't feel supported by me. And I don't feel like he wasn't able to communicate with me when something didn't feel good. If it, if he felt like I wasn't supporting him and he did feel like he was able to connect with other people in the places where I may not be able to help him. You know, I may not be the best person to talk to because it's hard for me to, to swallow that you believe in these things that I don't. And he had people in his life that he could turn to when he wanted to talk about those things. And I encouraged that. I mean, these were important people in his life. It's not like these were all new strangers. I mean, he has, uh, there are other loved ones that we have who, who followed the same path. And certainly at the end of his life, it, the sense of spirituality at, at the end of his life was so beyond one specific practice, right? It, it really became this level of, of having, really important relationships and really loving fully and really being okay with everything going the way it was. And he was never married before me and he was 45 when we got married. And, um, you know, I, it took him, it was, it was not because other women wouldn't have been interested in marrying, but he was a hard nut to crack when it came to falling in love. And I think that this, everything, he opened up in so many ways from this experience. Uh, I think he probably would have gotten there anyway, but I, I feel like I was, and he would tell me that I was an incredible support for him. I just think that the way what he saw as spirituality, it didn't change, but it had more to it by the end, you know, um, just due to the experiences of dealing with cancer and, and really, being in love to the place where you want to spend your life with somebody. Because when we went down that path, like we didn't get married thinking he was going to die seven weeks later. 
Like we didn't think that was going to happen. It happened very quickly. We thought we had time. It almost sounds like he grew past the dispensa technique. I don't know. You know, I, I think that that's hard to say. I remember asking him, like, you know, you do all these different things and have you ever felt a sense of relief? Like physically, you know, when you go into one of these other types of holistic alternative treatments, whatever they are, have you ever felt felt anything? Um, you know, have you ever felt a sense of relief physically, emotionally? And he was like, no, I've never felt anything from it. And so, um, which was really shocking to me because why would you keep doing this stuff? And I said, and that's what I asked him, you know, why, well, why do you, and he was like, because I like to leave space for miracles. And that's a, that is a, a phrase that I've taken with me in my life um, and will forever have it, you know, emblazoned in my brain is that we always leave space for miracles. And again, like that's where the problem here is. It's not that he was leaving space for miracles was a problem. It's a great thing. We want to leave hope out there. Um, the problem is when you shut down what we know to be effective ways of treating something. I think it's very natural and incredibly moving to leave space for miracles. And I think it's very unfortunate that there are many people out there who are really, really excited to colonize that space. Yeah, it is. Um, and again, like I can't express enough how, how heartbreaking it was to... You know, I, I mentioned this a little bit, but after his, after he passed, um, having people from that world um, reaching out to me and pitching their programs or books or whatever to me, and I'm like, God, geez, fuck you! Like, I'm sorry, but that's what I would think because these are people who are offering their products for somebody who is in grief, and it was just awful because I'm like, this was your friend, and now you're trying to sell me something. Like this is your cat. And, and that was a really, I mean, and it, I wouldn't say that that was all the time. And, and when I talk to different friends of his who, you know, are coaches or um, work in different, even other alternative healing modalities and stuff. And I talk to them, I mean, nobody thinks it was appropriate, but that didn't mean it didn't happen. And it didn't happen several times um, with people that I was very shocked would even like, why would you even, first of all, it's, it wasn't really a secret that I didn't believe in this stuff. That wasn't a secret. And it also wasn't a secret about where my support system was that I had a therapist the entire time and still do. And that I had a family and that, you know, I went on to, um, be in, you know, widow, young widow support groups and everything. So it's not like, um, I, they were seeing me like grieving without anywhere to go. You know, it was just an opportunity. And, to not even be able to separate that out with your own friend um, and his widow is, I mean, it, it just, and I don't think, again, I don't think that any of these people are bad. I don't think that's what it is. And I, I really do believe that for the most part, they really believe it, whatever it is. And whether that's just like, you know, this life or coaching aspect of it, or it's, um, you know, whatever it is, I, I really do believe that they think that they're helping. And structurally, what they have to sell is 
coming within the context of an unregulated environment in which any social opportunity can possibly be transactional and, you know, in which the ideas of healing are also wrapped up in ideas of being prosperous. Yep. And so it might not be morally repugnant to reach out to the widow yeah. uh, to further your business because everybody wins, right? You have a wonderful product and the widow buys it because she's got a settlement or whatever, <laughs> you know? And, and so, <laughs> and so the, the, the lucre keeps turning. Yeah. And I do think that that's, I think that that's how they looked at it. So I don't want to paint these people as monsters, though it was when I would tell my family or my other friends who were not a part of this world about it, it just made their blood boil, you know, how, how you could be so, um, just, just blind and, and so not tuned in to what it must be like to lose your husband. Um, especially so young, there are so few people that you can really relate to. Um, you spoke about your mother having cancer and, uh, you know, I was his full-time caretaker and, uh, and there are not very many people who have that opportunity who are young because they have kids, they have to work, they do all of these things and they need, but I was able to be with them all of the time. And that's such a gift. It's an incredible gift. Yeah. I was fortunate that my partner was able to, take care of our sons while I was at my parents' house. You know, I wouldn't trade any of this for anything. Um, I wish he was still here more than anything in the world. Um, I miss him terribly. Well, I wanted to move towards the end by echoing that with something that you've already written in a direct message that's been pretty haunting to me. You said, uh, as a wife, I miss my husband terribly and would do anything to bring him back. But then you also write, I wish I believed in the magic he did because it may have brought me peace after his death. So I'm just wondering if you can say a little more about that. Uh, yeah, um, like I said, you know, I wasn't raised with any sort of religious or spiritual beliefs. And um, I, there was, and I even talked about how we something that I would have wanted Lewis to take the lead on with our children. And um, I saw how much peace he was, how at peace he was at the end of his life. And I was with him when he, when he passed away and he was okay with it. He was content. He wasn't, he wasn't angry. He wasn't, in fact, he said to me that the, the only reason he, the only thing he was really disappointed in is that we didn't get to experience more as a married couple, but he had done so many things in his life and he was just so content because to him, he was so, he knew what was going to happen to him. He didn't know, but he knew he was safe and that all of these beliefs he had carried him to that place. And I wish I believed the things that he believed. I wished I believed that he was sitting here next to me. I wish I believed those things because it's really hard to know that you're never going to see someone again. And it would be really lovely to believe that I was going to see him again or that he was, you know, people will, they believe in signs and I don't believe in signs, you know, Oh, that, that, 
it, the snow started falling at just this moment and it must be him, whatever it is, you know, and, and I don't believe those things. And I wish I did because sometimes I think maybe, maybe I wouldn't miss him as much. Maybe it would make it easier. And yeah, that's, but I don't, I mean, even this whole experience, if there was something that would bring me to believe, I would think it would be this, and it still didn't. I can understand why it didn't, because it was so fraught with confusion, and and there were hints of charlatanry. And then there's also, speaking about leaving space for miracles, the capacity for a person to also somehow skim the cream off the top of all of that. Because that's because that's what it sounds like you're describing is that is that by hook or by crook, uh, he he had a good death. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, he loved living so much, and he was also not afraid to die. And that was one of the things when he was diagnosed. He told me, "It's like I'm not afraid to die. I'm just just really not done living yet." So, you know, it just gives you one more thing to be grateful for every day that you wake up. Mary, thank you so much for sharing so clearly and lucidly um, this incredible story. Um, I think this has been very impactful for you, certainly for me. I know it will be for our listeners. Um, I have this instinct to um, end by saying that by asking you whether you're a Star Trek fan. <laughs> I'm not. You're not? <laughs> because, <laughs> because. So maybe you're not as tuned into me as. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe it's good to break that spell uh, if there is one. But I mean, because, because the orientation between you and Lewis that you're describing, it reminds me of several episodes uh, I've watched about 70 with my nine-year-old son in which Jean-Luc Picard, who is the consummate scientist, who is, uh, but also this incredibly deeply moral and ethical man, is often in this position where he is appointed the caregiver or the main friend of somebody who has different beliefs altogether, somebody who you know comes from an alien species and they have uh, some ritual culture that is difficult to understand and they're going through a life transition. And he's been in several situations where he's been asked, <laughs> he's been asked, uh, can you be the caregiver or sometimes even the priest for this particular ceremony? And he'll say, okay. And then he'll just learn the incredible, uh, strange uh, belief structure and myths, and the and the um, and and the prayers and the songs. He'll learn them all. He'll go into his study and he will memorize everything so that he can do the ceremony really well, and so that he can honor this person who he loves in a way that they would really. Um, appreciate that would honor everything that they believed. And so the way in which I hear you having come to accept Lewis's orientation towards the world, I just, I just feel a little bit of that. 
And there's such there's a real <laughs> elegance in it to me. There's there's something very dignified about it. Not easy, and and certainly not without like all of the sorrow in the world, which you can see Picard going through <laughs> as well. But like, but like, uh, you know, there's always this sort of resolution of you know, I served this person who I really loved doing things that I did not understand. And yeah, I just love that. I, I, I love those stories. And so anyway, I hope that wasn't, I really an, appreciate that. I hope that wasn't an intrusion. I just, it was on my no, mind as I, I was listening to you and, and, um, uh, you know, very difficult. I to, think it's a huge, co- okay. huge compliment. Okay. It's a huge compliment because I I hope that that's what I gave him, and that's a huge compliment. So thank you, Mary. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, so once again, a big thank you to Mary. And as a denouement, I'd like to provide some social media evidence for how widespread the circumstances she's describing might be, and what some of the outcomes are and can be. Yesterday, I put a brief promo up for this episode on Instagram, and there was a flood of comments. Uh, And I'm going to read four of them with thanks to these commenters who gave me permission to do so while preserving their anonymity. So the first one says this, My 30-year-old brother with stage 4 colon cancer is making this choice, uh, and the choice is to refuse conventional care. He insists chemo kills and is trying to cure himself with fermented foods, weird drinks, and vitamin C. When you talk with him, he genuinely believes that his chances of dying are slim. It's really heartbreaking to watch someone you love make this choice. The second one says... My mum might have survived her ovarian cancer. Six years of macrobiotics, juicing, castor oil packs, Louise Hay, and Young Living essential oils for her slow-growing tumors. It was horrendous to witness what the cancer did to her body, and I wonder how much longer she would have lived had she considered chemo. Number three. My former wife was diagnosed with an aggressive but early stage breast cancer involving the lymph nodes. We were eating macrobiotic at the time and always leaned to natural cures first. Also, her mom had recently died of metastasized breast cancer. We ultimately opted for chemo and radiation and she's still cancer free after 16 years. Had we went natural, I'm quite sure she'd be long gone. And I'm holding back tears because this topic cuts so close. And then finally, my best friend chose not to have a breast tumor removed and also declined chemo. She was mainly influenced by Dr. Murkala and a doctor, in quotation marks, in Utah who made her believe an alkaline diet and colonics would cure her. And she was influenced by others like Tony Robbins and Brzezinski. Now, I looked up uh, Brzezinski. This is Stanislaw uh, Brzezinski, who's a cancer quack based in Texas who developed some BS therapy in the 1970s. 
So the commenter says, my friend ended up moving to Florida where she started seeing a therapist teaching German new medicine, which, there we, it is again. which we covered last week, and would tell me on the phone that she was fixing her past trauma and, and her tumor was shrinking. She went to Mexico to, quote, heat the tumors and make them dissolve, unquote. She carried radioactive rocks in her bra. And if you said anything about her therapies, she would cut you out of her life. And by the time she returned home and I saw her, she could no longer walk and her body was riddled with tumors. She was on her deathbed. From the first tumor's appearance to her untimely and needless death, it was little over a year. She had just turned 40 and left a baby boy behind. Rest in peace, beauty. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, we're open to hear your thoughts and feedback through our social channels and on Patreon. Please consider supporting us there as well. Next week, we'll be talking to Elizabeth Simons of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network about the trucker convoy protest still dragging on in Ottawa. The week after that, we'll be examining the history and emergence of post-germ theory quack medicine. And then the week after that, Matthew hosts a panel of four women who share their experience of watching their childhood friend, a yoga and maternal fitness influencer, spiral into conspiracism and become a leading figure in the Canadian anti-vax movement. Until then, take care. Mm-hmm.